Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Offside Rule WSL edition. Coming up on this show, the WSL's battle for survival just got a whole lot more interesting. Bristol City's victory over Reading on Monday night moves the Robins out of the red for the first time since September. West Ham have got the prize no one wants. They're the new bottom of the table club after losing to league leaders Chelsea, who maintain their two-point advantage at the WSL Summit. And fresh from celebrating International Women's Day, we'll be chatting to a true pioneer on and off the pitch. Former England captain Mary Phillip will be joining us on the show. Welcome along. I'm Lindsay Hooper. And I'm Kate Borsay. And we're joined on this episode by The Telegraph's women's football reporter, Tom Gary. Tom, welcome back. Busy weekend for you. You've been taking in quite a bit of the action, haven't you? Hello, yes, nice to speak to you both. I have, and really enjoying all the action. It's been a terrific weekend of matches this this weekend. One of the best of the season, I would say. Well, that's nice to hear, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but, and particularly the game on, on Monday night at Ashton Gate, which was just a, a thriller, a joy, a joy to be there, really. Um, and we saw some terrific goals as well, which always helps. OK, Tom, well, we'll get more on that in a moment, because we're going to start with the topic that everyone is talking about. Drama involving the Royals. It gripped us, didn't it, last night on the telly? Shocked those of us watching. I'm not talking about Meghan and Harry's interview (laughs) with Oprah. I'm talking about this. You're listening to the Offside Rule WSL edition from Muddy Dean's Media and The Athletic. Four forward here for Bristol City. Harrison looking for Ebony Salmon. It's an absolutely brilliant walk and she finishes! Yes, she can! What a goal! And a composed finish from their top scorer, Ebony Salmon. And this is quite remarkable. Bristol City are in front again here. <laughs> Nicely linked, Lindsay. I like that very much. Well, Bristol City moved off the foot of the WSL with a 3-2 victory against Reading at Ashton Gate. The Royals, the only Royals we want to talk about today, took the lead through Emma Harries on 13 minutes before Charlie Wellings levelled up things 11 minutes later. So one all at half time. Gemma Perfield then put Bristol City ahead after the break with a left-footed curled effort from the edge of the box. But that lead wouldn't last. Rachel Rowe fired Reading level again on seven. 73 minutes, 2-2, but the game wasn't finished. Oh no, six minutes later, Bristol City's leading scorer Ebony Salmon got the decisive match winner, scoring perhaps her most important goal so far for City. A second win of the campaign then for Bristol lifts them out of the relegation zone above West Ham. Tom, you were there, 8.15 kickoff on a Monday night, International Women's Day. Um, a lot of action for you for your first ever runner for the paper, trying to get this written up in time. <laughs> yes, there was. I was sort of almost two different people last night. I was the, the neutral fan loving the action unfolding in front of me. And then I was the, the newspaper writer thinking, heck, I need to uh, rewrite this for about the third <laughs> or fourth time. Uh, it's such a late kickoff as well. But uh, no, everything went well on that side of things. And, and in terms of the, the action, it was 
was just a, a real thriller. I mean, I think the phrase five goal thriller can be overused sometimes, but this was genuinely gripping and frenetic for the whole 90 minutes. So I loved it and uh, it was a great advert for the league, as you say, on International Women's Day. Bristol City going into this one, Tom, they will have known that this was a great opportunity. You know, if they could beat Reading, they send West Ham bottom. It gives their survival chances such a huge boost. But with so much riding on a game like that, it wasn't straightforward. They had to keep plugging away. And I think sometimes we can, as you've said, overuse phrases and and the phrase character maybe. But I thought that they showed that in abundance here. Yes, and that was one of the things that Matt Beard seemed most pleased about afterwards, uh, particularly when the heads didn't drop when um, Reading fought back to 2-2. And after conceding a fairly calamitous goal early on in in the game, they they still continued with their positive attitude throughout the match. And they played some great football. The winning goal in particular was, for me, that was a world-class goal. The ball from Abby Harrison, the the control from Ebony Salmon and the finish, it it was a brilliant bit of football. um, And it showed that, uh, that they have the potential to, to not just stay up, but to really kick on in the league if they can keep that, this form going. Because since sort of the turn of the year, their their form has been absolutely excellent and, and they, look, they look like a, a very confident and capable side at the moment. Yeah, Ebony Salmon, I mean, there are going to be so many plaudits about her, but just the sheer audacity of her using the outside of her foot to tuck the ball past Maloney and those great celebrations from the Bristol coaches. And of course, Ebony had a part in Charlie Wellings's leveller for Bristol, which was really important to get them uh, off and running. Perhaps a bit of uh, luck, Dan Carter for Reading having a goal ruled out for offside. But I think tenacity does does come into this one largely. Quick stat on Ebony Salmon. She's been, or her goals have been directly responsible for five of Bristol City's nine points. So there's no doubt really how key she is for the side. Um, Let's take a quick look at goal difference just while we're talking about goals. City's is minus 44. West Ham, of course, at the current uh, City interim manager, Matt Beard's old side, their bottom, but their goal difference is minus 18. So this is going to have to be something perhaps that Matt Beard needs to needs to have a look at because it could, it, well... <laughs> I don't think he can look at that. He needs to start doing something about it, doesn't he? Because that Because that... That puts City, Bristol City, at a huge disadvantage. I think he's got to forget that, Kate. You cannot look at that sort of goal difference and think you're going to make up that goal difference. That is not possible. It's not going to happen. You have got to be a point clear of your rivals come the end of the season. You're not going to be talking about making up over a 25-goal deficit. It's not going to happen. I, I think we can pretty much say that, can't we, Tom? Yes, I think you're right that, that, that they won't expect to be able to overturn that. But what we have seen is is great defensive improvements probably since December for this team. And, and I know Ebony Salmon is rightly getting lots of plaudits. But one player who's really stood out for me and is going under the radar is Gemma Evans, who I thought was absolutely exceptional for the most part last night. And she's been very, very good since December. Um, so mm. although they had some very heavy defeats at the start of the campaign, I suspect that score lines like that might might now be... Uh, not not something that we'll see involving Bristol City for the remainder of the season. I know they were, it was five nil against Chelsea, but that it, that wasn't the nines and and tens that we've seen in, in years gone by, and they, they they are certainly looking sharper at the back too. I did wonder about the Conti Cup final, Tom, and whether that was an unwanted distraction. I mean, it's great, isn't it, to get to get into the final of anything. But when you're fighting right at the bottom, I have to hold my hands up and say I was one of the, the sceptics that thought this could derail them a little. They could, they could get distracted. I actually think it might have done the reverse and done them a favour. Well, I think the cup run 
really helped for team morale actually uh, earlier earlier on in the winter um, and and I think when they were having a difficult time in the league and picking up those three wins out of three in the group stage back under Tanya Oxtby really helped to to give them the lifts they needed when they were otherwise having a very difficult time in the league and they were having injuries and Tanya had COVID-19 and that sort of thing and then and then those 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 wins were really important in the team spirit and then to win the quarter final against Aston Villa with such an impressive performance in uh, which I think was Tanya's last game in charge before her maternity cover that that also gave them a huge boost because it, uh, at that point they hadn't beaten anybody in the WSL this season so that was a huge one so although the final itself might uh, is going to be extremely difficult and it and it might interrupt their their rhythm at the moment that the run in general has still been extremely good for them and uh, I think they'll fancy their chances of having a bit of a go on on Sunday because we've seen stranger things happen in football I, I, I you make Chelsea clear favorites but um Bristol City will go into it with so much confidence after last night, and let's not forget as well that Chelsea will have travelled to Europe. So um, it could we could have uh, an interesting game on Sunday, albeit Chelsea, uh, you would expect to to win the game. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, let's move from the bottom to the top. And looking at the games that came prior to that match uh, at the bottom of the table, we had quite a lot to get through um, and we'll return to West Ham with this one. Chelsea remaining two points clear at the top of WSL after a comfortable 2-0 win in this London derby against the now bottom club. Sam Kerr opened the scoring. She headed home Beth England's cross and the roles were reversed early in the second half when England headed home a cross from Kerr. Frank Kirby nearly made it three late on when a header hit the bar. Uh, Another convincing performance from Chelsea in this one Tom and this started the damage for West Ham but they weren't really expected to do much in this one no although uh, yeah they performed relatively creditably against such a world-class uh, Chelsea team um, and I, that might sound extremely patronizing to, to West Ham but we have seen Chelsea really really run freely and score a hatful of goals against teams in the bottom half at times so West Ham performed to their credit but but yeah Chelsea are are so strong at the moment um, with, with the exception of that off day against against Brighton uh, a short while ago they, they've just been imperious and um, they're on a, a level now with the, with the talent on their bench and, and the depth in the squad and so many global stars I this is the best squad uh, that I can recall seeing um, in the WSL era and um, uh, they are they're a ruthless machine and and, and I think they'll, they'll they'll continue to to keep on winning and there's no signs of that stopping from from what I can see big claim there Tom from you I just yeah, in terms of the, the biggest, the best squad in the WSL era, I mm. think so. I, I think it's the best squad any British side has accumulated since Arsenal won the quadruple in two thousand and. And seven when they had a, so many legends in, in the team uh, then. But it, it, I'm, I'm, what I mean is, in terms of the the people that you can have on the on the bench at Chelsea at the moment. At times they've had Penilla Harder on the bench, for, uh, goodness me. But, but, but reg, more regularly, Aaron Cuthbert is, is such a, a a brilliant substitute option that most teams would have her as their. Their, their, you know, their, their first name on the team sheet, and um, we've seen Neem Charles coming into games and performing well, and uh, yeah, I could name so many, but just that talent going forward now, it, it's it's really exciting for for the British game, and it's why so many people are talking about them as possible Champions League winners because when you assemble Kerr and Harder and Kirby's in such good form, and Beth England's playing well, and Sophie Ingle, Mara Mielder, Magdalena Eriksson, we could go on and on, but the, the, the whole team is just world class and, and, and they're they're brilliant. 
Well, the point is, you don't kind of need to assemble them together, do you? You only need to assemble kind of a sum of those parts rather than all the parts together. And that's the that's the great thing about Chelsea. You know, Kate Longhurst and Emily von Egmond had chances for the Hammers in this. But I think, I wouldn't call it the, the sort of disappointing thing, but I think the notable thing about this game is that Chelsea didn't really have to ramp it up too much. Yes, the hammers were good, but Chelsea never had to find another gear, really. And they did conserve their energy, whether that was resting players or whether it was just, you know, ch- chilling with it a little bit, I suppose. And they've obviously got one eye on the return fixture against Atletico Madrid um, in the week. Um, having had such a spectacular performance against them last week, Tom, as well, you know, to survive an early red card, two saved penalties. That was a fantastic game for Chelsea. So they'll they'll be all about conserving serving energy I think and then um, you know building up to to the return fixture this week that early goal was from Sam Kerr was so important in that regard what you mentioned there about the Champions League because scoring first just gave Chelsea the chance to to take control of of the fixture and as you say conserve some energy which will be so vital in the middle of those those two Atletico matches you brought up squad depth Tom I think it's only fair that that we bring that up as well with regards to West Ham and and yes you're right Chelsea have had a lot of fixtures lately they also had Champions League action they've had to factor that in but as you've pointed out they have got a squad that can deal with that West Ham playing this one and then so soon after the match we've already covered uh, with Bristol City they're not as equipped to deal with that sort of turnaround not at the moment, no. And to be honest, although um, the specifics of this individual deal, I'm, I'm not completely aware of what went on, but it makes me so surprised why they allowed Alicia Lehman to leave on loan in the January window. Yeah. Somebody with with the ability to, to, to score a goal out of nothing and, and to create things. And, and uh, when when you're struggling like they are, I, I'm very surprised that anybody of that calibre was allowed to to leave the, the team. So, yeah, they haven't got the squad depth. I don't I don't think the recruitment last summer went as they as successfully as they will have hoped. That they just haven't really gelled into gear uh, after a bad start, and um, and as a uh, the concern for them is that they just haven't seemed to so so far they haven't seemed to respond to the methods that Oli Harder is trying to bring in. We haven't seen that new manager bounce. We haven't seen an upturn in results. So are they going to need to to turn that around very quickly because? Um, at the moment, things are only looking in one direction, and that and that's that's downwards, which is a real concern for an ambitious team. Yeah, they've had to sign uh, Manchester United goalkeeper Emily Ramsey on sort of an emergency loan after uh, Hammers keeper Mackenzie Arnold was injured in training. So they're you know having to sort of patch and patch and make do to some extent. Yeah, uh, if we look back at Chelsea then, two points clear at the top. They've won nine of their last 10 WSL fixtures, 30 goals scored in the process. But we want to now know about the team pushing them every step of the way. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So Manchester City, well, they kept the pressure on Chelsea with a narrow win over Everton. Kira Walsh scored the only goal of the game, nine minutes from time, firing home from the edge of the area after good work by Lauren Hemp and Steph Horton, who was making her 200th City appearance. It's City's ninth straight WSL victory, but they were 
below par, really, against an Everton side who defended impressively. Um, Tom, let's come to you on this one. I think it was a fairly muted performance, wasn't it? It is It is fair to say that about City in this one. I don't think they were at their, their fluid best, but then we shouldn't remember, forget that, that Everton are, are a very, very good side. Yeah. And sometimes you have to win games when you're not at your best. And I think the fact that they did find a way to win this one which could easily have been a, a, on another day a game that uh, that cost them points in a title race. They'll be really pleased to have, have won one nil when they weren't quite at their best. But uh, I was staggered actually that uh, Kira Walsh's his goal was the first shot on target in the entire game, which is uh, given that it came so late in the contest was very unusual. <laughs> you may have seen the inexplicable miss from Sam Mewis earlier in the first half. I'm not quite sure how that didn't go in. But uh, and I, what, what's inciting me about Manchester City more generally at the moment is how well the two young English wingers are playing, Lauren Hemp and, and Chloe Kelly, 20 and, and 23 respectively. I was at their Champions League first leg against Fiorentina and I thought they were both absolutely in wonderful form. Uh, and it's so exciting for England that they're, that they're getting that partnership together because we could be looking here at you know, for the, for the rest of this decade, these two cementing starting spots wide in the front three for England. And it, if they carry on progressing the way they're progressing, then that, that's a great prospect for the national team. I think Manchester City, certainly when Gareth Taylor took over, there were a few wondering about defensively whether they were up to this. And I think that's the area that I've I've been most impressed with because... They haven't conceded, have they, on home soil since the middle of December now. Um, Yes, this was only a 1-0 victory, but I was sort of looking at the clean sheet and thinking, wow, another one. Yeah, and when you've got Lucy Bronze, Steph Horton, Abidal Kemper and Alex Greenwood, then, um, I mean... (laughs) You're okay, aren't you? It's a very good (laughs) back four. Yeah, and, and, and Alex Greenwood actually is somebody who has, who I think has excelled this year... I, I, this is certainly her best season as a footballer, in, in my opinion. We saw her playing for a long period as the left centre-back alongside Steph Orton before Abidal Kemper's uh, arrival. And now she's moved out to, le- to left-back again in a more familiar role. Yeah. But in both roles, she's looked very, very composed, cultured, and, and her... Um, Ball playing out from the back has been a key part of their, their success. Yeah, as well. yeah. yeah, And the set pieces, absolutely. What about Everton? So, I mean, look, let's give them some credit because actually they defended really, really well during the majority of this game. I mean, Willie Kirk sort of pretty much had five or six back there at some times. But but he said sort of after the game that they had set up differently for this one, Lindsay. They had changed their approach. They wanted that solid foundation to attack from. They had to have patience as well. And to some extent, you know, I think other teams can look at what Everton did tactically in this game mm. and take some note from it. Yeah, I think so. And I think what, what one of the key plans was to really get Govan in the game and try and unsettle Manchester City with, with her ability with headers and holding the ball up and being just generally a very strong player, isn't she? Um, and I and I think that was how they thought they might sneak something. Um, it didn't quite work out that way. But it nearly did. Yeah, yeah, I thought they shaped it really well in this one. They've only been um, beaten by Chelsea and Arsenal on the road. Their away record has been fantastic. And then we can add Manchester City onto it now. But I, I thought that they were really good. It was a really good tactical contest. Coming back to what I said about the, the defence for Gareth Taylor, I think 
now that he's settled on on he's got an amazing defenders to choose from there but I think the problem early season when they were conceding a bit more is that he hadn't decided had he got new players coming back in like Lucy Bronze for instance and he hadn't decided on who that solid bat four or if he's going to play a bat three who that was going to be and I think now he knows and when the team sheet starts writing itself before matches that's a really good sign all right well let's go from one half of Manchester to the other this is the Offside Rule WSL edition, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Yeah, well, with this one, Manchester United returned to winning ways after back-to-back defeats. They saw off Aston Villa 3-0 at home. Kirsty Hansen gave United the lead midway through the first half, and it was 2-0 at half-time, thanks to Jess Sigsworth's header. Skipper Katie Zellum's header sealed a comfortable win for Casey Stoney's side. They remain six points behind leaders Chelsea. So I guess we start, Tom, by saying, is this blip of Manchester United's behind them now? I... Personally, suspect so. Yes, um, in that they had they had very difficult uh, away games at uh, Chelsea and Manchester City, which essentially ruled them out of the the title race. Which which Casey Stoney always stressed that they never really were trying to. They never really had ambition to win a title. It was all about European qualification this year. So, although they're disappointed to no longer really be right up there at the very top, but they that was never really their target this year. Uh, and the defeat to Reading combined with those uh, those losses, yeah, it was a bad bit. But they had they had injuries. They've really missed Tobin Heath, in, in my opinion, and now Leah Golton as well. But but they, they they were back. They were they were very very solid against Aston Villa. And I, I, at no stage did I really think that they looked like they might not win comfortably. I they they were very uh, much in command. Uh, and uh, the, 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 I guess in answer to your question, is the blip over? I, the, the, the tough game is is that mm. next one, a week on Friday, such a mouth-watering contest away at Arsenal, where very realistically you could look at that and, and say that if they go there and 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 get a result, then then well they'll know then if they get a result in that game that the Champions League qualification is in their own hands. Champions League battle, isn't Huge it? Game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is a tasty one. Casey Stoney at the end of the game said it was about being ruthless. I mean, she was just in no doubt about it. She was like, it was all about being ruthless. And I love the, the play between Hanson, Sigsworth and Staniforth. In fact, I realised that Jess Sigsworth has got too many S's in her name <laughs> after reading that. <laughs> Jess Sigsworth. Do, yeah. Um, but yeah, so with Hanson, Sigsworth, uh, you see, Hanson, Sigsworth see? and Staniforth. And, you know, Staniforth's set pieces, who are so, which are so well worked as well, I thought was very organised of them. And as Casey Stoney said, pretty, mm. pretty sort of ruthless. I... I actually thought Staniforth, I thought she was the player of the match in this one. And and what Casey Stoney needs is she needs other players. When, when you haven't got the likes of Heath, she needs other players to step up and be be the example and be the person. And yeah. I thought Staniforth did that really well. She's showing her experience. You know, you look back on her career, she's done pretty much most things. And to come into that side and be able to put in a performance like that will really have encouraged those around her. Um, so I thought big plaudits to her. She would be my player of the weekend, I think. <laughs> Oh, really? Okay. Uh, Tom, quick word on Villa. They didn't manage a single shot on target. I mean, Chloe Arthur's sort of pass straight into the path of Kirsty Hansen for United's first goal was just a just a really poor, sort of weak error, really. Uh, Villa four points above the relegation zone. Such a challenge for Marcus Bignot, really. I mean, how do they... How do they manage this? Well, um, I, first of all, I don't. I, I suspect from speaking to Marcus Bignot um, uh, after their previous game where they lost to to Arsenal, although you know he doesn't want to accept a culture of losing these kind of games, he knows he's not really targeting 
games like yeah. this for for anything at all. He's trying to use them uh, as uh, to, to learn from in many ways. But my my worry from from this game and the game against Arsenal, they they're not very often getting enough support up to Steen Larsson up top, who is a very strong kind of physical number nine. Uh, is quite is quite good at trying to hold the ball up, but it's getting that support up to her. Uh, and and I know uh, Mana Iwabuchi, who's been a wonderful addition to the team, what a skillful player she is. In sort of in that pocket in between, is trying to be that transition from midfield to attack. But the challenge is to get more support up from midfield up to, to join those two, because often Larson looks really isolated, and um, that's one of the reasons why they've not been getting many mm. shots on, on target in recent games is just because she's often all alone up there and looks a little bit lonely up front if I can say that. Okay well let's move from one team back to winning ways to another. Yes Arsenal's revival continued with a 4-0 win against Birmingham at St George's Park. We'll come on to the venue again later. The Gunners took control with two goals in three minutes from Caitlin Ford not long before half time. Vivian Miedemar added a third with a fine solo effort after 76 minutes and Lisa Evans' late goal sealed a second successive 4-0 win for Joe Montemuro's side. Um, this was another match that was played at St George's Park Tom. Uh, Birmingham clearly have got problems with that pitch. Yes, and speaking to Carla Ward afterwards, she she was frustrated because she feels the pitch is so big with its dimensions equivalent to Wembley that it you know it's not favouring her side and it's it's favouring those more expansive passing fluid moving teams like Arsenal. Uh, so she I think she's particularly frustrated that it's fallen with these games against uh, Manchester City and and Arsenal that they that they've played and they've obviously got one more now against Everton at St George's Park, which Carla Ward says she's praying she will be their last. Do, um, do we know any more about the problems with the, with the pitch? Because I'm looking out the window right now. It's beautiful sunshine. It, surely it's not <laughs> frozen still, is it? Yeah, real, really mixed messages coming out about this one. Um, I, from my understanding is that it's a drainage-related issue, okay. that, that's something that's not met requirements. However, um, from what Carla Ward was saying in her press conference, she she's of the understanding that... Uh, that it's not a case of that they categorically cannot play there, but that with Solihull Moors having lots of games at the moment, there were concerns that if they played there as well, that the, the pitch wouldn't recover and therefore there might be issues later in the season. So right. her understanding is it's more about conserving the pitch so that they can play there later in the campaign. Uh, which, which, that, which seems I, a bit, I mean, yeah. it seems, I, I don't know, I don't know whether I completely buy that that's the case for Dampson Park, but... Yes, um, yeah, it, it isn't helping them at all. I sense, although I can't speak for the FA here, and, and certainly this is not what they're they're saying to me, more, you know, in any capacity. But my my instinct is that the, after so many postponements and, and cancellations, and particularly the Aston Villa one, when the, where the FA and Aston Villa made every effort to try and get that game played when everyone knew the pitch was going to be frozen with the forecast for Solihull for that for that derby, and it was frozen in, 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 with five minutes before the game it was called off. With that one where, where the Birmingham board, as I understand it, refused to, to move the game in advance to St George's Park because they didn't want to pay a fee of more, just around £450 to go there. My, so with all that having happened after so many postponements, my, my kind of instinct is that the, the league have just taken matters into their own hands and said, we, we, you know, we, 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 you are no longer going to to play there until we're satisfied that the pitch is, is resolved, which is frustrating for Birmingham. As I must stress, that isn't, mm. uh, that's not what uh, the official line, that is, certainly that's just my real <laughs> okay, issue. There was real anger, I think, when, when, when the Birmingham board, the anger from the Birmingham players as well, when their board declined to move that Villa game. 
yeah, hopefully for all involved, things will resolve themselves. But certainly for next season, the club need to find a better solution because it's not going to be under soil at Solihull before next winter. And the drainage is still presumably going to be fairly similar before next winter. Now, uh, so I suspect they need to find a, an alternative for, for those winter months. OK, well, let's talk a little bit about the game. Um, quite easy going for Arsenal, really, in the end. I mean, to get to... Uh, two goals in three first half minutes uh, for Caitlin Ford sort of pretty much put them in control. So there was there was a good start from them there. And, and I thought interesting as well, Tom, that Joe Montemuro played um, Caitlin Ford up front with Miedemar just behind her. So a little kind of switch there as well. And then, of course, Miedemar uh, was always going to look threatening in the first half and did, did then um, convert in the second half. Joe, after the game, said that he felt the team had found their rhythm and their style again. Would you, would you agree with that? Yes, I thought the striking thing for me about this match was that I never felt Arsenal were out of second or third gear. They, they were cruising. Mm. Um, uh, and um, I, uh, th- th- I don't think anybody really broke sweat uh, in the game uh, from an Arsenal point of view. They had such control. Especially not Miedemar. She never breaks sweat, does she? Miedemar was so classy <laughs> dropping into that deeper role and, and, and spreading the ball around. Uh, Birmingham at, early on defended with their last ditch defending and the, some of the blocks that they were getting in in, in the six yard box, uh, they were defending very very well. And and you know, I had a thought around on around twenty minutes that if if Arsenal didn't get out of second or third gear, that they might not find a way through. But once they got the first goal, they were they were really in cruise control. Mm. That's what surprised me, and it might come back to what you were saying about the pitch, Tom, and what Carla Ward had been saying about the dimensions, because Birmingham going into this one had the fifth best defensive record in the league, and I thought Arsenal would win, but I thought it was going to be a narrow victory because of that. They did seem to open up after that that first goal. Very much so, um, and I... Again, similar to what I said about Aston Villa, I was concerned that there wasn't much threat going forward from Birmingham in terms of getting support up with the with the strikers. Um, but with all of this, we reach, I mean, we need to stress, I guess, how the gulf between Arsenal and Birmingham, not just financially, but in terms of the, the world class players. And I, I was really struck in the pre match press conference when when Carl, one of my colleagues, asked Carl Award how important it would be to get back to winning ways against Arsenal. And she sort of smiled and chuckled and, and said, have you seen who we're playing against? Mm-hmm. It's such a daunting prospect taking on the likes of Arsenal at the moment. The gap is... is and, and we have seen teams take points off each other, but in general, the gap is huge. And Arsenal's record under Joe Montemur against bottom half teams is extraordinary. They've got a um, 100% record against those teams and since during with Yeovil in, I think it was 2017. I, 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 forgive me if I'm out there, but it's a long time ago since since Arsenal didn't win against someone in the bottom half. They lost to Birmingham um, uh, around that same time as well, but that, but that that was a Birmingham side and the Mark Skinner who were fourth in the table, so I'm not counting that as a, as a bottom half side. So, yeah, they're, they're ruthless against anybody in the bottom half and, um, and yeah, they're winning games like this with ease. Fantastic. It's great to get that insight from you, Tom. So just one more match from the weekend to bring you up to speed on. Inessa Kagman's double gave Brighton a 2-0 win over Tottenham and a third straight WSL victory. Kagman opened the scoring in the 64th minute with a volley into the far corner and followed that up 10 minutes later with a sweetly struck goal from the edge of the area. Spurs hit the woodwork three times in the second half, but it is a fourth straight defeat for the Londoners who stay in eighth place in the table. Brighton are six points above them 
in seventh. Uh, let's scooch through this one pretty quickly because we're close on time now. If it, if it had been an eSports one, Kate, then um, Spurs would have won this. I, th- I think the Spurs players are pretty good at eSports from what I've seen on social media. <laughs> there you go. We just need to uh, to convert the whole league. Um, Tom, on Brighton, um, you know, again, really well organised. Hope Powell very, very pleased um, with the result at the end of this. Um, must have been frustrating for Tottenham. I mean, the game livened up after the break uh, with a couple of chances for Spurs. But I think, you know, Brighton's defence, again, if they've got that, got that solid line at the back it just means that they can be very organized there and then allow their attacking threats to do what they need to do yeah well they they've been extremely well organized in defense but and going all the way back to when they 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 drew at manchester city right towards the start of the season their defensive uh, organization has, has impressed me with a few exceptions uh, at times but uh, what really strikes me about Brighton at the moment is I what what's their game away at Bristol City where they were humbled really in January they were really not at the races and at that point they were on a really bad run of form and there were colleagues around me in the press box at Bristol City speculating really you know whether Brighton would, would be going down whether whether Hope Power would stay in the job uh, and and I was worried for them at that point because they looked awful uh, on that afternoon in January. But since then, three wins out of three, huge credit to Hope Powell and her team. They've really turned things around. They're, they're safe now, in my, for me, clearly safe, um, and, and have secured another year in the WSL, which is really creditable because uh, it looked d- difficult mm. over the turn of the year. But what a, what a turnaround. It has deflected some attention, I think, onto Spurs, though, this one, because heading into it, it was seventh versus eighth. Spurs now with that fourth straight defeat. Do you think it felt like seventh versus eighth next to each other in the table? I, I I don't think Spurs are playing like a side in eighth at the moment. They they are really low on confidence at the moment, and I can't quite pinpoint why that is. Uh, but I, yeah, Brighton are on an opposite trajectory at the moment. Spurs have got some big big games now. Uh, particularly, they're home to Bristol City on the twenty first of of March. And uh, they're going to be under some significant pressure in that game. I, I'm not sure that Tottenham will go down. I think they've got enough mm. about them to stay in the league, but they don't want to be losing a game like that. And, and, and they could find themselves in a, in a very nervy situation if they do. So, yeah, they're going to have to, to get back to winning ways very, very quickly uh, because it's, it's getting quite congested in, in that bottom sort of bottom five. Yeah. Just to round off this one, I thought it was a really nice touch uh, with. Uh, both players from both sides wearing uh, T-shirts in the warm-up with the name and squad number of Brighton defender Rebecca Stott, who announced last week that she'd been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. So we wish her all the best from us uh, and a nice touch from both Tottenham and Brighton there. Well, that rounds up the action, but it's not all of the news. We've got to mention a story that came to us late on Monday night, even later than the late finish at Bristol City that almost derailed Tom's Surely not. Another bit of news. Uh, Interim England manager Hegarisa will take charge of Team GB at this summer's Tokyo Olympics, with the Norwegian's appointment expected to be confirmed later this week. Of course, Phil Neville was set to coach Team GB, but joined into Miami in January. Reese is leading the England side on a temporary basis at the moment before Netherlands boss Serena Wiegmann takes over permanently in September. Um, Tom, you were whispering to us earlier that you'd all sort of suspected that this was going to happen. It was just a case of it being announced. And actually, it's sort of the news 
we all need to hear, isn't it? It would have been a complete shocker if someone else had come into the fray and they're like, you've got this brand new manager for Team GB. I think it would have uh, caught us all on the hoof a bit. I think so. I think it was the news that everybody's been expecting since the February international camp went so well. And I think, uh, from what I'm told, the feedback from the players uh, particularly was glowing uh, in regards to when they were consulted um, on, on how they felt the camp had gone under under Hager Risa. So once that, that feedback had been so strong, I think that this was a, a sensible and an inevitable decision to, to take and for somebody else to have been appointed as head coach above uh, Hager Risa and her to have been there number two would have been a slightly strange dynamic after she'd done so well in that uh, friendly against Northern Ireland. So yeah, some clarity now for England and, and Team GB for the next few months and uh, and yeah, some positivity around after going 11 months without playing a game, it, things now look a lot brighter for the national side. It's going to be a couple of months, isn't it, before we hear anything about possible players involved. Do do players, Tom, do you know, have to have to or do international sides have to put their players forward? How does the selection work or does the the um, uh, the FA just work with the pool of players without kind of anyone saying, yes, I want to do it. And no, I don't. I, unless I'm mistaken, uh, every, everybody uh, from, the, from Britain is, is eligible. Um, yeah. But um, from what I'm understanding uh, from a long list that has been created. Um, you, are uh, you talking uh, about um, Dame Sue Campbell's sh- longer list, short list? <laughs> long list, yes. short list. Any, <laughs> any list you like. Uh, it, yeah. And I don't quite know how long or short <laughs> the list is, but um, I... I, from my understanding, there are not very many players who are not English who are, who are on that list, um, which in, in some regards is is inevitable because England are, are so strong and have and are so high up in the rankings. My instinct is that that Caroline Weir will be one of those who's not English who is part of the squad. I think there's a good chance of Sophie Ingle from Wales playing, um, and and maybe there's there's a case for for Kim Little or or Erin Cuthbert, Cuthbert with only yeah. 18 spots. It's such a small team, so um, there's lots of people who'll be disappointed. But I, I would, I'm expecting, you know, at least 15 of the 18 that will be English, and I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised if it might even be 17 who are English out of the 18. As someone, Tom, right now who is planning a wedding, as you are for 30 wow, people, okay. you should, can surely relate to this, having to whittle down the numbers. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Uh, yes, it's not easy uh, uh, telling relatives and, and loved ones then they can no longer come to a wedding. And I suspect that's the kind of conversation Hager Reese is going to have to have with, it, with members of her own England squad, oh. of course, because that you know there'll be people who are in her squad for Northern Ireland who who can't uh, who can't go to to the Olympics uh, just to get it down to 18. Even before you then bring in players from from Scotland Dan, and Wales and potentially Northern Ireland. So it's a really difficult job, but it's a nice problem to have for, for Risa, isn't it? You know, having such talent at her disposal, it would be a bigger problem if we were looking at this and saying, well, who's going to be good enough to get in that 18? <laughs> you could take 18 of any 18 of 35 players and any uh, GB, excuse me, would still have a, a, an excellent squad. Well, one thing we can take from it, we've got Risa, we've got Wiegmann coming in, both female coaches. Nice to see that sort of news in women's football at the top job level, especially when we've just had International Women's Day. And it would be remiss of me not to mention a few people that are involved with this show. We've got our producer, Chesie, who's also a mum, been doing the homeschooling, back to school now. Everyone's like, yay, back to nurseries, back to schools. And uh, we've got Kate, who's got two children as well, uh, who's coming on the show every week. And you've been having to do this 
around all the homeschooling as well. I've got off lightly because I don't have any little nippers. Um, but I think just generally speaking about the women's game and the progress in the last 12 months, I think every year gets that little bit better and hopefully a bit better for all the females playing in the game, officiating in the game, working in the game in whatever capacity. Um, and I just wanted to say a belated happy International Women's Day to all of you. Oh, and on that theme... Well. On that theme. That's right, Lindsay. We've had the pleasure of speaking to former England captain Mary Phillip this week, the first black player to captain her country, uh, a defender with a distinguished career playing for Millwall, Fulham, Arsenal and Chelsea. Uh, But now it's men's football where she plies her trade as manager at Peckham Town, who play in the Kent League. It's a, a big welcome to the offside rule, Mary Phillip. Mary, thank you very much for joining us on the Offside Rule. Um, we have so much we want to talk to you about, about your career, about what you're doing right now. I think, first of all, we want to wish you a very happy International Women's Day, belatedly, because that's been earlier this week. Thank um, you. And I guess the word trailblazer has been put before your name quite a few times in, in articles. Are you used to seeing that? I'm used to seeing it, but not capturing it, so to speak. You know, it's a nice thing to be said, but I'm sure there's, Many women who have done similar things but just not had their name pulled for and put up there with the trailblazers. But um, it is nice to have my name associated with that. You are, of course, the first black woman to captain an England side. And um, we'll come on to that in just a moment. I think it's important for us to look at your journey. You're actually working at a school today and you must be within your job. You must see lots of little girls running around playing football and you must witness, actually, lots of hopefully England players of the future. How much do you think it's changed? You know, reference back to back to the attitude around girls playing football in your day. And what it's like now? Well, girls are playing football more freely and willingly now. You know, you can see the growth of girls playing football, women playing football uh, over the past 15 years, 20 years. You know, it is growing massively. Um, but trying to get into teams now, although there's many out there, it's not as easy to get into them as it was when I was a player up and coming. I started playing my football at a youth club. And that was an off chance of me throwing a football down the road with my friend and a youth worker seeing us and asked us if we played football. Um, and she was developing the women's team. And like, she spoke to our parents and our parents said that we could go along and join the team. Um, so it was straightforward to get into that team. And it just developed from there. And like, when I joined Mill Lionesses, you know, it was a phone call. And so I was interested, could I come down and have a training session? It was pretty straightforward to get into. But obviously now as the women's great game has developed, um, I don't know how straightforward it is. I had a young player in my school last year um, and I'm going to keep my eye looking out for her because she's definitely a player for the future if she manages to get into a team. But there was no local team um, that she was able to get to or travel to that would help her develop and become a world player. So there's a bit of a disconnect really between having very talented, capable girls playing football and almost too much of a gap between how you get from there up to up to one of the major sides. There almost needs to be kind of an interim step to help develop some of this talent. You grew up in Peckham. Um, you're now manager of Peckham Town FC. We'll talk more about that in the moment. But I, it, is, it is ironic, I suppose, that you grew up around the corner from Rio Ferdinand, similar ages. And when you look at your careers, you do, of course, notice, notice the differences between how both of you have had to play out your career. When we look at your time, I mean, you were, you know, went through the sort of experiment at 
Fulham when it went pro and you were part of that and then of course that that kind of fell down and and fell fell away slightly and then you went to Arsenal do you think that there was a gear change or that there has been a gear change since those days that's enough of a gear change towards accepting that you know women women can be players women are professional football players is there enough that's changed there's definitely a gear change in that, obviously, accepting women um, to be players and be professional. Um, but the levels, like I said, there's a drop-off level. There seems to be your grassroots level and then there seems to be your elite level and there's space in between. You know, there's not a big enough connection for players to come through and steadily get into the elite side, especially when you're looking at the England international team. You know, a lot of the elite teams are full of international players from all around the world, which is fantastic for the game in itself. Like the Premier League, you've got players from all around the world playing in that, which makes the league absolutely amazing. But then it's a shortfall for the women players in this country to come through and represent at the top level and to make a name for themselves and actually make the most of the opportunities being handed out to women in this country. So how have you found it being a female coach of a a male team? And do you think we're going to see that happen on a professional level? I think it's the question everyone's asking, isn't it? Is is, will that eventually happen one day? We saw Emma Hayes linked with the AFC Wimbledon job recently, which partly could have been a bit of a PR thing. But, you know, when is it actually going to be taken seriously? Uh, For me at Peckham Town, I've been at Peckham Town since early um 2000 when we started the junior team down there so now I'm well known down and obviously I helped build that the youth segment down there and worked through them and obviously the men are very open and welcome and they, you know, they don't take that I'm a woman and think I don't know what I'm talking about I don't ever tell them about my playing career or what I've done you know they take me for face value I even know what I'm talking about what I'm trying to explain to them or I don't know um, and luckily for me um, I'm, they're actually taking things on board and I'm actually knowing what I'm talking about and I'm obviously I'm leading them away forward, which is fantastic. And obviously, so down at Peckham Town, there's a lot of time down there for women to develop and to uh, progress throughout the game. Um, I'd like to see it happen within the wider community of football and obviously into the professional um, leagues. That would be amazing. If you've got the ability to do it, regardless of whether you're male or female, you know, if you can move the teams forward and as it is it's a, in the men's game, it is a money business and you can keep that money rolling in for the clubs and pull the players through and play the top flight and get your cups in and finish in the top four, which they're always looking for. There shouldn't be a problem within that, but it's just changing the stereotypes within the team um, from the top flight, from high up in that clubs, for them to change that and see that regardless, male or female, you, you are able to do a job out there and keep the club moving forward. Have you ever been approached, Mary, by... Uh, a, a professional team or by a lower league team? I've not been approached by a lower league team. To be fair, I'll keep my head down and do what I've got to do. Um, you know, like I said, I, I'm a play leader. I enjoy doing that. You know, Peckham Town, that's my voluntary work. I've been doing that for years. And, you know, it's, it's Peckham, you know, my heart is in Peckham. So it's fantastic. <laughs> it's it is very personal. I'd say I wouldn't take the opportunity if it was given to me and it was the right opportunity for myself and my family. I'd obviously explore that. Um, but I've not had um, any approaches as of yet. It's um, been International Women's Day. But, well, in fact, it's often called Women's History Month, isn't it? The month of March. It would be remiss of me not to discuss you being a mum and actually being a mum re- really early on in your career as well. I've got the, the the utmost respect for you. You were you were called up 
to England at 18 uh, for the 95 World Cup. And then after the World Cup, you had your first son, I think. So you were you were you were young. But kind of aside from that, you were basically told that you probably wouldn't ever play for your country again, that that was you done and done and dusted as soon as you became a mum. Yeah, I was pretty much told I weren't going to be playing football, you know. Um, it's a desire to want, you know, obviously 18, getting called into the women's uh, international squad, that was amazing. You know, going to the World Cup uh, in Sweden, that was fantastic, that experience that I experienced out there and just seeing how things go at the top level, you know. Uh, obviously, when I come back home, uh, I discovered I was having a child and it was a toss-up. People like, well, that's it now for you. It's It's motherhood. And that is it for you. But I didn't see it like that. You know, I couldn't see why I couldn't have both, like have my cake and eat it, so to speak. And I've done that by making my child a very big part of my life. You know, as every woman does, your child's part of your life. But I weren't going to give up my life in the process of that. And it can be done. Um, it's not easy and it's not straightforward, but it can be done. And obviously, I'm proof of that. Not just myself, but there's many women out there who do have big careers. Um, bigger than what I've had and do have a family and able to bring them children up to the best of their ability and succeed in the career they've chosen to do and for me it was football um, but football was my passion you know that wasn't my mm. job which many people fail to see you know that was my hobby and I got to play at the top level you know and that can't be taken away from me so it was amazing. You've done incredibly well. I mean, to have managed to have juggled all that and and, and when you did it as well, because timing is everything. Kate made this comparison earlier of if you linear wise took your career and you took somebody else from Peckham like Rio Ferdinand and, and what he went on to achieve. The biggest gulf is, is in the income, isn't it? And the lifestyle that he's been able to provide in comparison to what you've had do you do you think that lack of opportunity does it does it leave a bit of a sour taste when you when you see that comparison like for like men versus women obviously when you see it financially um it's got to be the biggest difference between myself and Rio because we both went and played for big clubs we both went and played for England we both captained England um but obviously the salary for him was a big thing you know I still had to go out and work um I only trained like twice a week um, and played our games on a Sunday. Um, but our training was like 8 in the evening to 10 in the evening. It weren't during the day like the men's game is now. And also the women's game has gone to now. Um, so that is the, that's the biggest comparison in there. Um, but the passion for football is obviously what was what drove both of us. You know, we both had a passion for football. But the men's game, as it is now, is still a lot bigger. And the finance is coming in, which what helps it grow. And it's made into a big business is what makes men's game stand out to the women's game at present. Mm-hmm. We can hit we can hear it kicking think? off in the background there. <laughs> yeah, all the all the kids are kids are knocking on the door. Do you think race is a barrier still in the game at all, Mary? We've we know about this from a coaching perspective. We spoke to Hope Powell about it a couple of weeks ago about how not enough black coaches are getting an opportunity within the game and why that might be. We can also run that alongside the fact that actually the women's national team um, now contains less BAME players. It's less diverse than it was um, 10, 15 years ago, which which I can't make sense of. I don't know why that is. Um, I don't know whether you've got any 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 take on this at all. Uh, I could have a big take on this, um, but, you know, it's questionable out there and you'd have to, it's the politics of the whole game and the whole system and just life in general, you know, we're in a very multicultural country with players of all, all nationalities that are playing here and we've got women that are playing of 
you know, of all abilities. And there should be an easy way for them to get through. Like when I was playing, like towards the end of my career, half the team, you know, the diversity in the team, you know, half the team was there and they were play. But there was there is a barrier there. But asking people like myself, um, Hope, um, Rachel, any Alex Scott, all these players that are coming through, you know, we'd all agree with there's a problem there without doubt. Um, but we're the wrong people to give the answer because the people you need to be answering, asking are the people at the top which are stopping these people coming through because we'd open the door for them. I'd open the door all day and let them come through and try out and get an opportunity. But the opportunity, from what I see, isn't being given to them to put their foot in that ladder, make that step forward and have the same presence that myself and other players have had um, throughout our footballing career. So there's a massive issue there, isn't there? Because what what you're saying, and you know, please do correct me if I'm wrong, that diverse players, BAME players, are not being given the same op- op- opportunities as as white players in our English national team setup, women's setup. It would be seen as that, um, but like I said, unless you're actually in there and you're at the top and you're filtering through, um, you you don't know why that is. Is it because um, playing at top flight? Like in the men's team, you want all your players playing within the within the top league. Is it because we've got so many international players that aren't British within the top league, so they're not getting recognised unless they go further down the leagues? And that could be a barrier. But until, like, like I said, the people at the top start looking at this, there's not going to be a change within there and allow these players to come through. Because, like I said, I personally would open up the doors and let people come in and try it out. Um, I'm sure Hope would be doing similar and. Anybody you've asked would probably come in and do a similar thing. Um, but until it changes at the top and they start looking at how they're starting to pick their players and how they're going to allow them to come in and get selected, you know, we're not we're going to see that diversity slip in more and more like we've just seen. Like you mentioned the England squad, you know, they had a squad of 20 players who were all white players and then they made it a 21-player squad because there was a bit of an uproar on Facebook and then they pulled in Ebony and then all of a sudden it went quiet because they pulled this one player in. You know, surely that's when it should have been picking up to say, one second, if you could have pulled this player in, why was she not in in your first 20? Why have you made it a 21-player squad and you've pulled her in and everything's gone quiet, you know? The questions need to be asked, but they're getting asked to the wrong people. No, I've got an opinion, but I'm not the person to be asking because I'm not at that top level picking the players are saying or scouting say these are the players you need to be bringing into the squad to give it that variety and taste to actually representing the country we're living in which is a very diverse country and we're not representing it just a, a final quick one from me Mary I know that you were dealt a bit of a hammer blow a few years ago with an MS diagnosis and I think it's important to celebrate people with MS doing extraordinary things um how are you at the moment how's your health and how do you deal with factoring that into your career I'm doing as well as I can do. You know, I just got to not take everything for granted that I used to and realise that, you know, anything can happen to me along the way. I can't control what my body does, but why I've got full control of it, I've got to make the most of it. And I know I've got a great support team around me. But yeah, it was a bit of a blow. But like myself and many others who do have MS and other um, diseases that eventually stop them doing their normal everyday things, you know, you do what you can when you can do it. And you just hope for the best. And, you know, when it hits me, and it's mad when I say when, because it's not if, because there's a guarantee that it is going to hit me. I'm not going to get away from it, that I can bounce back a bit more. You know, I know it takes a bit away from me each time I have a relapse. Um, but hopefully I've got enough within me to keep coming back, 
um, and keep going forward and doing what I'm doing. There's a great quote from you I read it and you say until your body shuts you down you don't give up and I think that that's a great analogy for life you know until someone or something shuts you down you don't give up and I think you are a real real example of that so uh, we couldn't think of anyone better to speak to as we celebrate International Women's Day. Thanks for joining us Mary Philip. You're welcome thank you very much you have a great day. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. That was Mary Phillip, former England captain and manager of Peckham Town. Tom, such an underrated legend in the women's game. I don't know what we do to shine a light on lots of these ladies who've really set the stall out for all of us and created the opportunities that we all now have. I mean, how do we pay her credit? Well, she's done so much for for the sport and and goes under the radar sometimes when we talk about some of the real legends of of England. But I would say she's right up there and right now is doing really powerful things because to be there as a woman managing a men's side and for to have led them to their first ever senior trophy in the club's history um, will will hopefully mm. send out a message to the to the wider world that uh, if you know that women should be considered as for these manager roles at men's sides far more often than they currently are because uh, this is this is a, a world class international footballer who is now an A licensed coach. Uh, and is doing a great job. So uh, it's. Uh, I think she's been a, a wonderful ambassador for the sport and, and long may it continue, really. Hear, hear. Let's talk cups now then, because Champions League or the European Cup this week, we've mentioned uh, Conti Cup or League Cup final this Sunday, Chelsea versus Bristol City. And the FA Cup is returning, Tom. Yes, the news that uh, so many teams and, and fans were hoping for. There was a real concern that with the the lower leagues not being allowed to, to play and train as they were classed as non-elite by the, the government, that, they, that they, these early rounds weren't going to be completed. But uh, And in, initially there were real fears that, that some of these ties might be settled by a coin toss or something mm. similar. And, and there was an interview that, that Kelly Simmons from the FA gave with ITV in January and, and she admitted that although it wasn't an option anybody wanted, it might be the only option that was left uh, in order to complete the competition. But... But thankfully, that, that Thank there is, God, yeah, yeah that, that that that's been averted, and um, and and uh, I, I, really interestingly, that the powers that be have favoured delaying the latter stages of of the cup to to next season, okay. rather than trying to rush ahead uh, and uh, and play matches sort of off the pitch with a coin toss this year, just to complete it on schedule. So we're expecting that at least the semi-finals and the final will now be played next season. Um, and I would anticipate that every round up to the quarterfinals perhaps will be played before the end mm-hmm. of this term. But what that might that might be a slight blessing in disguise because with the semis and final next year all being well, they should therefore be able to have fans in the stadium. Yes. Which which uh, yeah, and that's we, huge for the FA Cup in particular. Yeah, I think so. That 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 day out in the sunshine, hopefully at Wembley with, with a bustling crowd. That's that's a day that the women's game treasures, and and I think um, that although. It being delayed again is a, is a shame. That that actually, as I say, could be a blessing in disguise for the sport to, to for that to go ahead with with, with a really uh, excited crowd in, in, at Wembley. 
We also now know that Northern Ireland will face Ukraine as well in April. That's for the playoffs in the Euros. Um, But I think we should look ahead now to next weekend, shouldn't we? We've not got much time left. So the action we've got to come, there's four fixtures next Wednesday. There's that Arsenal-Man United game next Friday that Tom mentioned. Uh, Just two games to tell you about this week. This is aside from the League Cup final on Sunday. So on Thursday, Birmingham play Everton, Tom. Yes, the third and in Birmingham's hopes final game they'll play at St George's Park. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I think I sense actually it's going to be a, a more important. Well, it's, it's a huge game for both teams, but more important for Everton because they got difficult games coming up afterwards. So I think Everton will be very conscious that they don't win at Birmingham. They got Chelsea coming up, uh, and you got a, you know a difficult run of games towards the end of the season. So there'll be one that Everton have really targeted three points, and uh, unfortunately for Birmingham, their their run of fixtures isn't getting any easier. And Sunday sees Reading host Tottenham. Both sides looking to bounce back from defeat at the weekend. Uh, there's also, of course, uh, the second leg round of 16 Champions League ties for Manchester City and Chelsea this week. Wednesday and Thursday uh, and we'll get uh, stuck into those I think uh, with some reaction on next week's show. Thank you very much for your time again Tom. Um, what have you got coming up this week? Well I had the pleasure of speaking recently to West Ham's Dagny Brinyars Dottier all about Mother's Day uh, because she's got her, her son alongside playing in the Women's Super League and she was telling me how much she's really enjoying life as, as a mother while, while being a WSL player when initially in her career it wasn't quite so easy juggling that but now she's very happy at West Ham the club she supported uh, when she was younger so uh, I've been putting that together for, for a nice Mother's Day piece uh, and uh, yeah lots coming up the, the news agenda is busy at the moment lots of games and of course Friday the draw for the Women's Champions League quarterfinals and, and semi-finals uh, and we, I can't wait for that one Who uh, we were expecting that both English clubs will, will now progress so who will they get in the, in the open quarterfinal draw? Thanks for the plug on Mother's Day as well. Nice reminder, Tom, that we all need to get thinking about getting the florist on speed dial. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, don't forget to check out the Offside Rule website, offsiderulepodcast.com. You'll always get every single Monday a roundup of five things to note from the WSL action. That comes from Jesse Parker Humphreys, so always a good one to watch out for, and plenty more besides. You can also follow us on social media accounts like Twitter and Instagram. We're at Offside Rule Pod. And as always, we would love to hear from you with your reviews. I did actually see a couple sneak in. I haven't written them down, but we'll do another shout out next week because we've run out of time this one. But if you get in there, give us five stars and a little bit of a review, um, we'll get you included on that shout out next week. We'll see you then. You've been listening to the Offside Rule WSL edition, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Offside Rule at offsiderulepodcast.com and by following at Offside Rule Pod on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places, or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Offside Rule WSL edition is a Muddy Knees Media production. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.